LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Irvin Laszlo, who joins us to discuss his book, The Intelligence of the Cosmos, Why Are We Here? New Answers from the Frontiers of Science. For the outdated mainstream paradigm, the universe is a giant mechanism functioning in accordance with known and knowable laws, patterns and regularities. But the new paradigm emerging in science offers a different concept. A universe as an interconnected, coherent whole informed by a cosmic intelligence. This is not a finite, mechanistic, purely material model. It is a, it is a holistic system infused with consciousness. And within it, we are conscious beings who emerge and co-evolve as complex vibrations in what Laszlo calls the Akashic field of the universe. With his collaborators from the forefront of science, cosmology and spirituality, Laszlo shows how the rediscovery of who we are and why we are here integrates seamlessly with ancient wisdom traditions, as well as with the radical new worldview of cutting-edge science, revealing a meaningful and positive way forward for humanity on this planet. They explain how we have reached a point of critical incoherence and show that in order to save ourselves, our environment and our society, we need a critical mass of people to consciously evolve new thinking. Offering signposts to orient this evolution, Laszlo examines the nature of consciousness in the universe, showing how our bodies and minds acts as conduits for cosmic consciousness, and how understanding science's new concept of reality enables us to grasp our true identity and purpose. Uh, hello and welcome, Irvin, and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Well, Greg, it's wonderful to be with you again. Thank you, Irvin. Now, today we're going to be talking about uh, your latest book, which is uh, by yourself and a number of other contributors. Uh, the title is The Intelligence of the Cosmos. Why are we here? New answers from the frontiers of science. Before we dive into that, just tell listeners a little bit about your background and your work in general. Well, that's very difficult. You know, the greatest problem always is to know what's think about oneself. I just want to say that I'm an inquiring mind. I, I always, I'm looking for answers to questions to which I'm not aware of answers or anybody having really good, solid, uh, final answers. And I want to look into those things and communicate. If I come up with something, I want to communicate it. So I have managed to publish a number of books. In fact, this is the 91st of, of books, of, 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 of the books that have been published under my name. Not all of them have been entirely by myself. Some of them have been co-authored, some are edited. And this too has contributors, several contributors on the second part that pick up the ideas. But uh, all of these books that I mentioned, they are really 
come forth from my desk and try to mirror or communicate my ideas. My ideas, which I said in the subtitle here, why are we here? The further idea is who we are, where do we come from, where are we going? These are the open questions that uh, excite me, fascinate me, and I try to come to terms with. So just tell us about the genesis of the new book then, because as I mentioned a moment ago, it's by yourself and a number of contributors. It reframes and reiterates some of those aforementioned big ideas that you're concerned with. And uh, well, every time you publish something, it always feels very timely. If there is anything here that's being restated, it seems like it needs to be restated. Well, it's not so much restated. I, I always think from the ground up. I don't add on to anything that I've already published. In fact, I have a great reluctance to read things I've already published. So I'm actually it's a kind of a sacrifice on my part also to talk about it because um, once I've published it, once I've written it down, there it is. And then I wonder what the next thing, what is what I should go to consider next. So uh, the same here. Uh, these are questions that have come up, of course, in my work, in my in my life in my publications, but I, every time I start to read, to, to consider it from the ground up, reconsider it, as if I've heard it for the first time. So in my previous books, you know, I have had two books published last year in, in, in 2016 uh, with the titles What? What is Consciousness? And the second one was What is Reality? And I've tried to find answers to them. And in the course of these of these books, I've come up with this, come across these questions of who are we, why are we here, and then I decided to write a small book, concise, compact book, just on these questions. And the outcome is this book, The Intelligence of the Cosmos. I'm going to ask you a personal question, and this isn't in my notes, but in your life, do you remember when? you started to ask of yourself uh, these questions, the big questions that you mentioned a few moments ago. Um, for, for me personally, uh, my best recollection is that they were always there. I remember even before I could really speak well enough to actually have a conversation with adults that I was wondering what this was, if you see what I mean. What this, yeah. this thing that we were part of, I was kind of asking myself, what is this for? It seems to be pointless on the face of it, but I felt that there was a purpose. So and that go I say that goes back to my earliest memories. So I don't know how it was for you because in, in some ways I thought to myself, why sh should we be able to, to discover the answers to these questions? Maybe they are unknowable. And yet it felt like part of our purpose was to find out. That's exactly right. That's exactly how I feel about it. Yes. Now, in my case, it's, I had a very checkered career, you know, because as a child, I, I had an influence in the house from my mother, who was a concert pianist and piano teacher, and my, from my uncle, her brother, who was a philosopher. So uh, in the mornings, uh, I used to practice the piano with my mother in the afternoons, often went to a walk with my uncle. And uh, so uh, there's a, the, these questions came up. Of course, while, well, whereas they came up, my uncle, not that he overwhelmed me, but my, my uncle has thought about these things and he didn't really ask me to think about it. He brought those up, those questions that occupied his mind. And I was then so busy in my childhood with my career as a, as a 
child prodigy on the piano, having played concerts from the age of nine, that uh, it never really occurred to me to seriously consider these questions. I was a concert pianist. I, I was to, to grow up to be a concert pianist. I already had a good national and then international reputation. And uh, until I was in my mid-twenties, I never seriously thought that I should ask these questions and think about them. They were there. They were there in my mind. I knew because from my childhood conversations with my uncle, they were always present. But I didn't take them seriously as something I should do until my first son was born, Christopher. And when he was over one year old, and we had tried, we had managed to get a good nanny from my wife's uh, family and surroundings. She's from Finland. We lived in, in Munich, in, in, in southern Bavaria, in Germany, near Munich. And that at that point, uh, we went out for a holiday, in fact, for the New Year's holiday. And uh, I looked out over the snow field, snow-covered landscape, beautiful landscape in a famous town called Karmisch-Partenkirchen in Germany, in southern, on the Austrian border. And I asked myself, why am I here? You know, And that really the question that launched on me. Oh, let's launch that new phase in my life where I said, I should really do something about, think about looking into that. I should start reading. I should start talking to people. I should start, start attending lectures and so on. And that is really marked perhaps that night in, in New Year's night, New Year's Eve at Garmisch Partenkirchen, which I think, as I think back, was the launch pad, the moment when I said, okay, so now I start taking this seriously. So from then on, I just read and read, talked to people, and it's a one-way street, and once you start in this, you can't go back. Okay, um, let's give listeners the thrust of the material in the book then, because we've mentioned that we're trying to sort of address some of the big questions of existence here, in particular kind of at this time where we find ourselves as a species at this moment. Why now? It is when when you get on in life and get on in, in time, in your age, you suddenly start thinking, what is the bottom line? Start going down to the bottom line. So I was less interested now in the technicalities. I'm interested really, what is it truly all about? And I dare to speculate, since I could refer to other publications, to all those things that I've written in the previous uh, 50, 60 years actually now, and so I, I, I just came down to this question, why are we here? That is the rock bottom question. And then, if you like, we can talk about the ideas, the approximate conclusions, the guesses, the intuitions that I have, which are backed by the evidence which I came across, which I try to, to ground as well as I possibly can. But they are still not rock bottom. They're not something like mathematics or, or logic. They are still, let's say, the most likely story. And that's not me who just said about the best thing we can do is, is to have the likeliest story. It was an individual by the name of Plato, two and a half thousand years ago. He said anything about the real world, any discourse about the real world, is the like is a likely story. So I asked myself, what is the likeliest story about why we are here? 
Now, I spend a lot of time speaking to various writers and researchers and other individuals, and we are engaged in conversations about the problems that we're having as a species. It feels at the minute we're going through a period of crisis on multiple fronts. Uh, there's an expression in the book, I believe, I might be paraphrasing here, that we are evolved enough to know that change is needed, but not what change is needed. And that's certainly, to a large extent, how things feel at the moment. It's got something's got to change, but what do we do? And my predilection has always been and is to seek for answers that are not ad hoc, that are somehow connected. And ultimately, if I connect, can connect it with something as fundamental as the nature of development, progress, evolution in nature and in the universe, then I try to look at that. And in this book too, I really I I get give my answer in terms of two two observations. Let me say, one of them is that this whole universe is impossible to be purely a random chance, accidental concatenation of events. It's far too coherent. And even though the time for this particular universe, probably the cosmos, the other universes as well, but for this universe, it's likely to be the period from the Big Bang, which when all the material particles that furnish this universe have been created in this cosmic explosion, even though that is 13.8 billion years, according to their best consensus estimates, that time is far too short to have created a coherent universe such as we find in astrophysics, in biology, in physics, and, and even in the social sciences, although that's more chaotic than any of the others, that is still far too short to have produced this universe this time. So there must be something, some guidance, some impetus, I like to call it information, but in a very definite sense, in which David Bohm, the great physicist, used this as a formation, something that forms the universe, is formed by something that is beyond the universe, but acts on the universe. And that I'm trying to look at that information as the basis for why things are, why we are the way we are, and why and how we should be. The answer to the letter is try to be more clearly, more specifically, more aligned with this evolutionary trend which we find. That is my mission, that, that is what I seek, to understand this trend and try to see how we could align ourselves with it. Because I'm convinced that the more aligned these natural processes in the universe, the healthier we are, the better we correspond to what the purpose might be for our being here. Contemporary science, cutting-edge science, is indicating to us that cosmos is coherent and that all things are interconnected. Uh, and it seems far to an extent far beyond what appears to our senses or even to our instruments, which have given us, allowed us to extend our senses down into, you know, atomic and, and subatomic levels. But while there's a widespread acceptance of that, there seems to be resistance to the implications. And even though science and spirituality down the ages seem to be trying to tell us the same things, uh, this resistance partly stems from, it seems, um, I suppose it was an enlightenment or a scientific thing whereby the dual troubles caused by organized religion pushed people away from that. Um, and so anything that would speak to 
anything that sounded like meaning or purpose in the cosmos was kind of rejected as as religious um, or pseudo-religious in its kind of uh, implications. But also when we started to, in the scientific age, started to drill down into things and separate them, that we then also lost the bigger picture of connectedness. So it seems that all of that appears to be feeding into this kind of resistance to the implications of what appears to be the, the cosmic picture that we're putting together. Well, I like to think in terms of chunks of development, intellectual development, which you can call also paradigms in the terms of, in the sense in which Thomas Kuhn has first used this, uh, paradigms of as a set of interconnected assumptions about the way things are, which really guide our questions and, and orient also the kind of answers that we are looking for and the kind of answers that we might find. We don't start from absolute zero. We d- just as the universe apparently didn't start from absolute zero, because the laws of nature, as far as we can piece it together, have been there from at the Big Bang already, because what emerged already, these particles, the way they, they uh, cohered the proton and the neutron and then the electrons to it, and the build-up of the atomic structures and the molecules and so on, this started at the very, very beginning. There's current evidence also discovering, showing that this, this process, which led to life, began before DNA was present present in, in the universe, in space and time. It predates life as we know it. So this is a basic impetus in the universe. And it evolves, it develops, it articulates in the course of time. Of course, a lot of things are, these are not non-linear processes, and not everything does, and many things fall back, many things become extinct, many lines of development. But on the whole, when you look at the overall picture, there is a process of articulation. The initial chaos following the Big Bang gradually becomes more and more organized, articulated, coherent into series of events that we can identify as physical events, than as biological events. And then now moving on to the highest level where we see biological species interacting, creating societies, creating entire cultures. So evolution moves from the cosmological, physical, to the biological, and even to the sociocultural level. And that is a progression. That is something we can recognize. And if you can, if you're willing to ask the question, how are these things connected? then sooner or later you must come up with the answer. They are connected with some definite directionality, not purely randomly. Pure randomness, as I said, probably doesn't exist. If it's an interconnected universe, it couldn't even exist, because all things are connected, then nothing is entirely free to be what it wants to be or, or could be. But if you ask these questions and allow the answers to suggest themselves, then we see that evolution has a direction, a preferred directionality, something that biases the random interplay of, of uh, particles and molecules and all other units made of them. So this is the recognition that, that, that come in science, that you cannot actually argue with. If you're willing to pose this problem, willing to ask it at that level, then you come up with directionality. And then, of course, you have then have a handle on the question, why? Because when a process is taking place that has a preferred directionality, then the logical answer is 
the process takes place in order to reach that uh, that direction which is indicated in the unfolding of the process. This is true, of course, of artificial projects, uh, processes. We create something in order to have that something, have that something work like that. Whether it's a, it's, it's a cooking pot or a computer or whatever it is. And, but this is a general principle. If a process takes place, whether, by, whether originating in human mind or in nature, if it takes place with a definite directionality, then our safest guess is that there is a purpose underlying that, that process, and that purpose is to fulfill that, or to move in that direction, fulfill the questions or the, or the challenges posed by that particular directionality. I know this sounds uh, anthropomorphic, anthropomorphizing the, the natural cosmological process, but what we are coming across now, whether or not mainstream scientists like it, or whether they object to it or not, whether we are coming across is that this is not a random universe, it's a purposive universe, and this universe in, in creating the kind of evolution that it manifests has something which is recognizable as a purpose, as if purpose, you say, is suggests some intelligence that is entertaining that purpose, then I would say yes, in that case we must need to recognize that this totality which brings forth evolution, which created the universe in, in from, a, from a chaotic uh, uh, soup or sea of, of uh, nonlinear processes, um, which then this, this universe itself has a purpose, the purpose of creating what it, what it does create, and then we can ask, what is it that is created? What is it that we find? How can we frame it? How can we understand it? How can we be aligned with it? This is the line of inquiry that I follow, and I think it is a logical inquiry. It is, to quote Einstein, the simplest possible scheme of thought that can tie together the observed facts. That's what he said is the purpose, is the, is the challenge to science. Find the simplest possible scheme that can tie together what we observe. Not a very selective, only partial uh, set of observations, but the main kind of observations. In this case, the observations of the direction in the unfolding of a trend that we name and call evolution. So directionality, we, we can go beyond that to some sort of teleology. That's to say, it's not just that there, there, there clearly is order uh, in the universe, uh, which you said, which implies some sort of intelligence or at least points us in that direction. But in terms, we start speaking about purpose. Are we then speaking about, you know, an, a point to be reached? If not an end point, then maybe point or points to be reached. Because a lot of people accept that there is this order and that, you know, evolution is, has a directionality. It is moving, but they also contend, but ultimately, yes, it's amazing, but it is mindless. That is to say, there's, it's just like a pinball working its way down across a, a pinball table. It's just going wherever it's, that just happens to be pushed. But if it was mindless, it would be random. If it didn't have the purpose or be given by a direction, then it would be, a, it would be a, a, a randomly interconnected set of events, interactions that are basically non, non-definitive, not defined. And that, of course, runs into the problem of time and coherence. Uh, Fred Hoyle, the, uh, the physicist, said that 
the probability of even of a set of DNA by random mixes would create a species is similar to the probability that a hurricane blowing through a, a scrapyard would create a working airplane. Of course, not, it's not zero probability, but it's so unlikely to occur even in 13.8 billion years. So there is this argument from time, argument relating to coherence, and we can say what has happened so far definitely shows an element in nature which is which biases the randomness which would otherwise appear or govern processes. There is something there that biases it. That something could be called a purpose. That's anthropomorphizing it somewhat, you know. But it is something there. And if you say purpose suggests and presupposes intelligence, then I would go as far, after all these many years of, of thinking about these things, I would say yes, then we must recognize that there is an intelligence which we call cosmos. It is the intelligence which creates an evolutionary process of which we are a part. To recognize this is to be one with it, and I think to be one with it is to be whole and healthy. So that is a, a very positive, necessary factor, particularly in this world today. Well, I used to think that for a lot of people who wouldn't consider, or even, I think the phrase is used in the book, even perceive evidence along these lines, uh, they were just blind to it, you know, it's just literally, it was right in front of them, but it's not there because, you know, they've got a blind spot in their, their consciousness and their intellect about it, that that was all down to the idea that if you allow meaning and purpose into questions of existence, then it allows God in. And you get a load of, um, this is people who are resistant to religion and they'll say, yeah, well, that opens the floodgates for all sorts if we start to talk about meaning and purpose. Therefore, it all has to be random, meaningless, despite evidence to the contrary. But, it's no longer that simple because we now have, um, as I mentioned earlier, um, uh, scientists, you know, and other academics, whatever, from a secular perspective, also denying or failing to even perceive pointers in evidence that's right in front of them. The resistance in academia to some of the ideas that, that you've been putting forward, as you said, that you find to be very obvious that the evidence is pointing us in this direction. We must consider this. We must accept uh, the possibility of this, it, it, the resistance seems to be sort of way beyond. I mean, people are concerned. Academics are concerned about their careers, about tenure, about their reputation, about getting funding, about getting published, and all the rest of it. But it, it does seem to have gone beyond that. And there's a phrase now, scientism, basically meaning uh, scientists who behave in a fundamentalist fashion, um, just as much as as any religious person does. Inside saying, you know, that are he, adhering to a dogma despite any evidence to the contrary, uh, that that seems to be a major issue now as well, particularly when so many people at large in the general population get their ideas about the latest thinking about life, the universe and everything from, you know, new scientists or whatever it happens to be. Well, there's a big difference being fundamentalist in terms of believing a given set of statements and fundamentalist in searching for the fundaments of reality, fundamentals of what there is in the world. You know. So in the latter sense, I, I think what we talk about fundamental research in science is precisely what is needed. We need to look at the fund, fundaments, at the foundations, and not blindly, of course, believe anything that comes up. Fundamentalism, as a scientism, let's say, as you say, 
is wrong, is misplaced, when it fundamentalizes or validates, validates and makes into a holy cow given statements without sufficient evidence. If we have evidence and it is the most clear, most concise, most simple yet adequate scheme by which we can explain what we observe, then it is good and right that we say, I believe in that. Not necessarily in such a way that you can show me something different, a flaw in the reasoning, and I won't accept it. That's wrong. That's scientism. But to be able to follow the argument wherever it leads you, that's free. That's free inquiry. That's free inquiry looking for the foundations. And people who don't do that, they are afraid, as you yourself imply, that you open the floodgates to, to spirituality, to religion, to mysticism, and so on. Actually, there are many of the things that people have entertained by intuition for thousands of years are being rediscovered at the frontiers of science, at the interconnections, at the, at the, uh, at the uh, oneness, at the space and time uh, transcendence of certain processes, at the appearance of consciousness. Uh, it's another argument, but it's, but it's, has its place here. Uh, appearance of consciousness even beyond the brain. And these are all issues that a freely thinking, openly thinking person and mind can accept as worthy of consideration. And then when examining the evidence and considers that it is the most reasonable, simplest, most uh, logical explanation of the facts, then I think it is hesitate to hesitate to say that this is my belief that this is likely to be true, not absolutely true, necessarily true, but is likely to be the truest picture, the most likely story, as Plato said, then that is a necessary consequence of an open mind. And then I'm not afraid to follow it wherever it goes. Yes, you've hit on something really important there. And to be positive, despite the picture I was painting a few moments ago, ancient wisdom, new science are coming together. You know, we're having some scientific confirmations, as you say, of things that were intuited for thousands of years, possibly the entire length of human existence. And that's where I think some of the most interesting work is happening. I get the impression that science and spirituality converge and diverge down the ages. And I think in general at the moment, we're experiencing a, a period of convergence. And uh, as I said, there is some resistance to that, but I think we're getting fundamental truths coming from very different angles. And to me, it indicates something, you know, basically where religion has come from, you know, what that was for, the need that it fulfills in human beings. And that's why that I think that whatever form it takes, we'll never have a world free as such of religion, free of dogmatic organized religion. That might be a positive development, but there's a fundamental need in us to seek ultimate meaning and purpose. And that's what both science and religion have been, are trying to address. I mean, I look at the, the work that's being done at the, at CERN, for example, um, that the research facility there, and mm. they're, they're doing the same as, as some people in cathedrals are doing, you know, they're looking for ultimate meaning. Yes. But this concept of uh, coming together and our separating of that you mentioned are very, very essential. In history, in the history of thought, there have been periods when there has been an overall search, a search for an overall meaning that excludes many of the facts that don't fit 
simply uh, go with what we believe is the case and try to fit the facts around it. And then it's a very salutary and important development to say, okay, stop, let's now look at the evidence and what is the most reasonable conclusion from the observations, from the evidence that we have. In that case, if there was a cleaning up process taking place, that was from the late 19th century, it started by but the logical positivist, the so-called Vienna Circle, and that has done its job. It has done its job to the extent where it swept clean the idea of deep thinking a deep understanding of the world, because it was considered, the whole question was considered just metaphysics. And for the Vienna Circle, not, nothing was more pejorative, no expression was more pejorative than calling it metaphysical. Now, to some extent, we find that this process has done its work. It is now cleaned up its slate in such an extent that we ended up with a mechanistic, uh, sterile universe in which the only thing that exists are sensory data, things that we perceive immediately, and anything going beyond that is metaphysics. That is also a position that has been taken, but now it's several decades old, and it's no longer maintained, not certainly in that uh, simplified form. Now it's time to bring together intuitions that have accompanied human inquiry into the nature of the world with the observations that come through more and more sophisticated means of observation. And as we know, no observation carries its own meaning. Every observation, as far as we can tell, allows different interpretations, and the choice between them has to be as clearly logical as possible, but it's still a personal choice. And it's important now to look at the possibilities of how we interpret the facts before us, the facts that are coming to light at the frontiers of inquiry into nature, into physics, into biology, into uh, social and cultural dimensions and psychological dimensions, and try to piece together a picture that is coherent and meaningful. That is, I think, is the phase in which we now find ourselves. And it's important, at least to, to my mind, it is a phase to which I have dedicated much of my life and I think it's important to continue to pursue that. Okay, well, many people feel, uh, whether they're analysing the situation closely or whether they're just vaguely aware of it in the background of their own lives, that the critical point in history is how things feel at the moment. Is that a bit of a cliché? Because we have this sort of millenarian thought going back thousands of years that things have reached a, a tipping point, something's got to change, and people expecting the apocalypse, it seems to just come up regularly just like any other like bank holidays on the calendar um things feel like that at the moment but uh, is it a cliche to regard this time that we're experiencing at the moment as as pivotal well we are of course it's diver diversification integration convergence divergence it has taken place all along but never have so many people have been connected so closely and with such a great potential of communication as they are today so now we are involving not only a small group of people in Vienna or in Moscow or in New York or wherever. We are now involving the thinking stratum of the entire human population in a process which really asks what kind of world do we live in? Is this the best possible world? Can we improve on it? Uh, is, is the, where does it lead? And who are we? These are questions that can come up 
and have come up and have now a possibility of being considered by a vast group of people inquiring open-minded people, hopefully not too dogmatic people, the world over. And therefore, a critical point raised for these many people means a turning, a possible turning point for humanity. Because never before, and this I think is a big statement, but I think it's true, never before has the entire human community been threatened, even to its very survival, as we are today. We may have in millions of years ago been a small group of people and relatively small and maybe we have survived at the edge of possibilities of, 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 of survival in a jungle but today we are creating a situation where we ourselves are the threat to our survival and this threat is very real we are embarking in a direction in which if it's unchanged we can extrapolate from that and if it's unchanged, would lead to increasing crisis. And with increasing crisis, we have the means, the negative, destructive means to employ, which threatens our very life and the life of all people. In fact, the life of, of, of all higher biological species on this earth. So this is new in that sense. We can, we can be the genesis the nemesis of our own extinction. Never before has this, has this been the case. Never before have so many people been able to pose questions of this kind and try to come to some conclusions. So there are negative and positive aspects. But surely, while the overall question of change and crisis has been coming up time and time again in history, it and this dimension and this level of integration, it has never come up before. This is something new, and it's something that we cannot help, cannot afford to disregard. Well, in the past, the meaning of myth used to be somewhat different. Uh, it didn't necessarily mean something that was inherently untrue. And I think that a number of human myths uh, extend, at least in part, from something real, and are there for a reason. The myth of the deluge or some of the stories in the Bible, it doesn't mean that to the letter that they are true, but I think some of it extends from something that's real. And as I say, they persist for a purpose. I think Atlantis, for example, isn't just a completely just made up fiction. I think the, the idea of it extends from the possibility that we perhaps as a species reached the edge of extinction at some point in the past. And I think that our advancement is a, very much a case of two steps forward, one step back. I think that we advance in a sort of staggering fashion. The general thrust is forward, but sometimes we take a spill, we take a fall. We may be on the cusp of something like that, but personally, I'm an optimist, and I think that the forward thrust is there. It can't be denied. Now, whether evolution, which seems to be the what the universe does, whether it needs us, human beings or not, I'm not sure. We, you know, we may not make it, but I think that the, the grand project, as it were, goes on regardless. Well, you know, you're talking about forward, but you're implying by forward that there is a direction. Mm -hmm. Forward is in that is in a given direction. Otherwise, it will be regression. Otherwise, it will be going back. So this is this is the basic question: finding a direction, aligning ourselves with it. I think whatever historical facts have behind us, uh, we have to put them into historical context. I have moments when I say 
the history of philosophy has been a history of faulty speculation without sufficient evidence. But you can also say the history of, of science in as much as it dealt with more than immediate experience, which is not really science, which is just description of, of what is in front, what you believe is in front of your nose. Uh, even that is a history of, of drawing faulty conclusions from minimal evidence. Trying to do better than that in the future is, is a big challenge. But what is before us now is an existential question. Can we survive on this planet? Can we have seven and a half billion people roughly moving higher and higher, eight and perhaps nine billion? Can we as a group survive in such a way that we don't produce conditions that are inimical, negative in relation to the life, the dignified, the human life of a part of this population. Very, very questionable assumption, this whole survival question. And if we actually move beyond the level where all of the population can survive with that level of well-being, dignity, whatever you call it, which is characteristic of a human being, then what would that do to the others? How can we let some parts of this population disappear without affecting the others? Can we altogether consider, conceive of allowing one part of the human population to, to disappear, to vanish, to become extinct? This is a moral question as well. But it's also a very practical question. We, for better or for worse, we are so strongly dependent on each other and on nature that to the extent that we find flaws and act in a flawful way uh, with our relations to each other, to that extent we are endangering our own survival. We are not separate. We can't say it's okay for me and for my group or, or my class or whatever it nation or whatever it is. We will survive, that the rest can go down the drain. doesn't work like that. We are far too strongly dependent on each other and on processes in nature. All of the resources that are needed for our life, for our survival, must be somehow made available, accessible to all people. Otherwise, we are endangering our species, endangering through the so the destruction of us, extinction of our species, the life of all species, we are a, either a cosmic menace or a cosmic driving force of evolution. And it's up to us which one we will be. Just a closing thought then, Irvin. I know many people, intelligent people, good people, who want the best for the world, but they, at times, for better or worse, they engage in nihilism, misanthropy, they will say that they hate the human race. I don't think that they really mean that at core, but they don't like what they see around them, and they relinquish to despair about our predicament. And these are precisely the people that I think would could be agents for positive change. They're exactly the sort of people who, if they could alter their thinking, could be part of solution, if I can use that word. As you point out, or one of the contributors points out in the book, it doesn't take everybody in the whole world to change their thinking, to change direction for things 
uh, in general to change. It's just enough people. So in general, the question is just what you would say to the to people who are um, in despair. Well, this is a question that's sometimes been posed as a question of the critical mass. What is a critical mass that can change the world? And this is a question that is very relative to what the world is doing. How stable is the world? A very stable world has a lot of defenses against change. You need an enormous mass to make a, a real fundamental change. Then you have an unstable system threatened on multiple fronts. And then the question comes up more and more. We do need to change. Can we change? Then a relatively small group of people can change the world. Because then, again, the other idea, this Margaret Mead said, you know, as, as we, a small group of people can change the world, nothing else ever has. But then the other idea, which, that, which is attributed to Victor Hugo, Hugo, but could be others, was that uh, uh, there's nothing as powerful in the world as an idea whose time has come. And I think what we need today is to inject that new paradigm core, that core concept, that quintessence of how things are hanging together. What is our most likely estimate of the, of the, the way the world is and how we can align ourselves with it. If we can inject that idea into that welter of inquiry, of worry, of, 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 of discussion and debate about the nature the change that we need and the possibility of change, I think then a small group of people can nucleate with its ideas and can produce the change that will make for a fundamental change. I believe that this is coming about. I'm optimist because I think that very evolutionary process that we have been discussing appears in the mind, appears in the feelings, in the intuitions, in the sensations of people when you move beyond the surface, move beyond deep down into yourself, you'll find the same impetus, the same evolutionary drive in you that you find in the cosmos, in the universe. That's why I'm optimist. I think we need to, ins we need to look in, inside, not to an outside source, a deity, a, 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 whoever it is, a whatever it is, something beyond space and time, but within us, as it appears in us, then I think we could find the kind of drive, the kind of direction that would orient us, because the direction is there in the world. Nature is directional. We are directional people as well, entities. But let's kind of slice away, get rid of the surface, flaws, disorientations, misinformations, and get down to the bottom, rock bottom question, who are we? How are, can we be one with the universe? A, a, a metaphysical question, perhaps, a question that seems esoteric, but it is the survival question that will decide the fate of, fate of humanity. Irvin, today we've been talking about your latest book uh, by yourself, and as I mentioned at the top of the hour, other contributors. It's entitled The Intelligence of the Cosmos, Why Are We Here? New Answers from the Frontiers of Science. Now that's widely available everywhere. Perhaps just before we end for today, you'd like to share details of your website and just anything else you'd like to put out there. Well, I think if people look at the book or look at, you can look at, 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 at my site, which is erwinlaslo.com. 
and orlaslowinstitute.com that shows my research institute. And you'll find a lot of information. Today, the information is very broadly available. But what we need is really to discuss the key questions, distill the questions from what we take in hand, what comes across our hand, then I think we can do that. We have the means of, of looking, surveying the offerings today on the intellectual field and finding those that are realistic as well as positive and hopeful because there is a reason for hope. There is nothing ever as dark as the moment before the dawn. And I think we are at that point where the dawn is now coming. Splendid. Well, Irvin, once again, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you, Greg. I enjoyed our conversation as always.